Um, we do have a, a lot of guests here today. Another welcome to you. Um, I, I do want to point out the uh, gold insert that is hopefully in most of your service folders, and if you'd like to use that um, to uh, fill in, to follow along. Um, if you're in a growth group for the first time, remember to take some notes and to bring it with you today or whenever your growth group meets. And even if you're not, uh, you and your spouse or friends may be able to uh, u make use of the Bible study on the back of it. And we are in the third week of this series called uh, Family Matters. And, and really, what we are doing in looking at different aspects of the family is recognizing that the God has an ideal in his Bible, in his word. And as the designer of marriage and the designer of family, he knows how the family should best operate and work. But at the very same time, there also is the real that you live in. And when you look at the real and you compare it with what we were talking about with the ideal, there's this gap. As an example, and I shared this with you week one, I was a much better father when I was thinking about how I would be a dad before I had kids. And I would always be forgiving and I wouldn't yell and lose my temper like my dad did, right? I'm not going to do that. And then my kids got me. And I do the things I didn't think I should or wanted to do. The same thing is true with as a husband. Um, I promised things to Carrie, or at least talked about things with Carrie, about always being romantic or always being patient. And then she got this. And I'm not that way all the time. And I'm guessing the same is probably true for you. That there's this gap between the ideal that you know or that God shares with you and the real that you live in. And the reason for the gap is simple. You're made up, your family is made up of sinful people. That sin messes things up when it comes to the ideal that God has given for us and to us. So what do we do with that? I, I think this is so important that we need to review it. What you do is you relentlessly go after the ideal. Do not change the standard. Don't lower the bar. Don't let culture direct you to lower the bar. You go after the ideal because God's direction is always best. But then when you fail like I do, whether it's in the evening or in the morning, just renew yourself with the gospel of God's grace that not only covers you with his forgiveness, but actually strengthens you to live better, to do better that day or the next day. So today we're talking about that other item or another item that every family has in common, and that is that we don't always get along perfectly. There's conflict, there's arguments, there's disagreement, there's family feuds, so to speak. And I want to spend a couple minutes just giving you some thoughts on this point, that the conflict in the family is unlike conflict anywhere else in any of your relationships or in any other area of your life. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is just the nature of conflict, okay? So, Let's imagine that two lawyers are in conflict. They're arguing a case, and the, the, the one lawyer is arguing his point, the other lawyer is arguing his, his or her point, and they're in disagreement, and when the case is over, one person wins, right? One person loses. They both know that that's the case, that's the nature of being lawyers, and then they move on to the next case. At work, 
Let's say you have a disagreement with your coworker or the direction of a project, let's say, that you're in charge of, and these two coworkers come together, bring it before the board or your boss, and, you know, here's my thoughts on the, the thing, and here's they present their thoughts, and there's this disagreement, and then there has to be a direction that's chosen, right? And you know that, you recognize that, that's the nature of being a coworker. And one wins and one loses, so to speak, and then it, it kind of hurts, but you move on. <laughs> In the family, if you lose an argument or a conflict, you lose. If you win an argument or a conflict, guess what happens? You lose. You know what I mean, don't you? Things do not get better because... Rest my case, Your Honor, I won. Things do not get better because you had the perfect charts and graphs and you showed your spouse or your kids exactly why and you just rammed them over the head with the right answer. Winning an argument is not the goal in family conflict. In fact, I would propose that if you win and so demoralize the other person in your family that they feel like a loser or feel as if their opinion didn't count because you're so right, you're going to have more problems than you had before the argument, before the disagreement. Are you guys tracking with me? You agree with that? Maybe it's just in my household. See, the goal of the family is not to win or lose. Because we took vows that we are going to support, encourage, strengthen each other. So even if you don't agree, and that's going to happen, the goal is not to come out ahead. The goal is how do we both get to where we want to be, and how do we love and support each other to get there. So that's one thing. It's different than any other dynamic. Uh, here's another thing. We all process conflict in different ways, so we don't always understand where other people are coming from. Um, I was reading this week and came across some categories of how people uh, process conflict, uh, some titles. So there are people that are the peacemakers. And peacemaker, you think, sounds great, right? And there are good aspects to a peacemaker. But the thing is, with a peacemaker, what they do is, is basically they want to have nothing to do with conflict. And if you're fine, then I'll be fine. I'll get over it. I'll be fine. But they're not really fine, are they? They've just stuffed it down deep, and it'll come out or come, at, come again later. Um, you've got the sulker. The sulker is kind of like uh, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Um, even after there's been some resolution to conflict, he or she just kind of walks around with their shoulders down and, you know, are, are you fine? Uh, I'm fine. Well, you don't sound like it. I'm fine. And they hold on to it too long makes it worse than it should be. Um, you've got the litigator. The litigator are those kids or spouse that should be lawyers. They're the ones that have that airtight case, and no one in the family wants to argue with them because they usually have good logical reasons for where they're coming from, and they don't give up until you've stopped arguing with them because they're right. I think I have some litigator qualities to me. The problem is, what I shared before, it's not about being right. It's about moving together. And then you have the last one I'm going to highlight. There's more, but the yeller. Any of you live with, don't raise your hand. Any of you live with yellers? 
The, the yeller has the inability to talk about topics. They just start yelling. And the funny thing is they don't think they're yelling. I'm not Who's yelling? But the person across the street can hear them yelling, so you know they're yelling. And you're wondering if you're not a yeller, why can we not have an adult discussion about anything? You just keep yelling all the time. And so you've got that as well. These people that you love so much and they process conflict differently. Now, the awesome part is that the Bible intersects with the the challenges we have with conflict in the family, and it does two things today in just two small verses from James. It first of all helps us understand some of the roots of conflict. Again, we're not going to be able to explain it all, but I bet some of this is going to apply to you to better understand conflict. And then, number two, that we are going to be able to find out what the solution is to it and hopefully apply that to our lives. So James is the writer of the section or the verses we're going to look at, and uh, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the first century. He also happened to be the half-brother of, anyone know? I, I think I heard it, of Jesus. Yeah, Mary and Joseph were his parents. And so, you know, talk about knowing the inside scoop on Jesus' family. Um, James would have had the inside scoop, and I'm sure having one perfect son like Mary and Joseph had caused some conflict in the family, especially from the siblings, I'm sure. But James writes about conflict, and really in the first verse, gets at the heart of what it is and what it may not be. So we turn to James chapter 4, verse 1. He starts off with a question to think about. What causes quarrels and fights among you? You know how sometimes I'll take a question and have you talk about it with the people you came to church with? Um, I was going to do that with this question, but then, you know, I'm smarter than that, and I figured that if I did have that as the discussion topic with the person you came to church with, guess what might happen? There might be quarrels and fights among you. What causes quarrels and fights among us? Because what is our default mechanism? You (laughs) cause fights and quarrels among us. And if you'd just come home from work a little earlier, or if you'd just get the things done on your honey-do list, or if you'd just give me more attention instead of all the attention that you give to the kids and I am just get the leftovers, or if you'd clean your room, or if you'd make your bed, and on and on and on, right? When we come to this question, every single one of us, because we battle the sinful nature, our default mechanism is to blame, isn't it? That is, even if we know better, our default, what happens naturally is to blame someone else. Um, In connection to this, I've uh, been reading a book kind of on the side called The Lies We Believe. And uh, just accidentally, something I read this week intersected with what James speaks about in this verse. And it helped me better understand the futility of blame, which directly applies to this question. So I thought I'd share this with you. But do you know what happens when you blame someone else for not being happy? Practically speaking, here's what you do. You take your happiness and you give it to the person you're in conflict with. (laughs) You give it to the person you're in conflict with and you allow them to hold your happiness. 
He, Tim now, is totally in control of when I'm going to be happy because I'm blaming him for being unhappy. And the only way to be happy is for him to do what I want him to do. Isn't that insightful point? Isn't it ironic that when you blame, you give the person you're in conflict with control over whether you're going to be happy or not? How futile is that? Give me my happiness back. A <laughs> little bit more. James kind of says the same thing. The end of verse 1. Doesn't the source of quarrels and fights, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Yes, the people around you do things that make you upset that you don't agree with. But then you and I have this amazing opportunity to decide how we're going to react to it. And the people that are really upset and really unhappy, they've made a choice to be unhappy and to be upset. They've taken the stimulus, whatever it was, the occasion, the thing, and then they've processed it and they've made a decision to be unhappy, to be mad. If you're not quite tracking with me yet, um, there was another example from this book, The Lies We Believe, and it went like this. Imagine there's a telemarketer who is in charge of calling 10 families, 10, 10 homes, and asking for a donation to a local charity, okay? So it's the same telemarketer. She has the same spiel. She uses the same nice tone, okay? And yet what happens? She gets different responses. So of the 10 phone calls, let's say four of them get really upset and slam the phone. Three of them um, politely decline, and three of them gladly give. Now, it's the same caller, the same spiel, the same voice. What's the difference? It's not the caller. It's the person who's received something that maybe they didn't want and then decide how they're going to react to it. That you and I have this ability, especially people who have the Holy Spirit in us, as Christians, if you're a Christian, to respond to the difficulties of life and to add a little bit of patience to it. To respond in a way that those who don't have the Holy Spirit in their lives wouldn't. And that's exactly what James says in this verse. Don't blame others for the conflict. Thank you, Kurt. You can go. Here's, here's the root of what's going on inside you in a conflict. You want something, but you're not getting it. Think back to your last conflict. Isn't James right? At the very root, wasn't that it? That you wanted something from your kids. You wanted something from your wife. You wanted something from your husband. You wanted something from your parents. And you weren't getting it. So there's conflict. And yes, there's a lot more to it. In fact, you might come back and say, it's not just that I want it. It's that he promised it. It's not just that I want it. It's that 
I'm supposed to have it. It's not just that I want this thing, whether it be respect, understanding, love, a cleaner room, um, a better or different lifestyle, whatever it is. It's not just that I want it. it it's part of what they promised. It's, it's part of what he promised to me in the marriage vows or she promised to me at our marriage vows. And so, yes, there's more things around it. What did I say at the beginning? We're not looking today at the heart of the person next to us. We're spending time looking at our own hearts and the deeds inside of us. And it's true. At the end of the day, conflict happens when we want something, even good things, even important things. We want it and we don't get it. And so James goes on. You want something but don't get it? You then kill and covet. You cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight because you're not getting something you want. Now, I highlighted you kill because James is saying you guys are killing people. And I want to acknowledge also he's not talking about, he wasn't speaking to a bunch of murderers who were actually going out and killing people. He's using hyperbole here. And, you know, remember the, the phrase that says when you hate your neighbor, you're a murderer? They're, they're hurting relationships. They're killing relationships. They're hating other people. They're disliking people because of the stuff that's going inside, on inside of them. That's the same that's true for us. That if we were to take some time to take ownership of the beads that are inside of Mr. and Mrs. Mug, that we would admit that the conflict would be easier if it wasn't for the fight or battle in my own heart. What if we did this? What if the next time there was a conflict, here's that little bit of practical advice that I think James is leading us to. What if when we had conflict, we just owned what James says in this verse? And then when conflict comes up, we just say to ourselves in our hearts, I know what the problem is. Or at least I know what part of the problem is. I'm not getting what I want right now. What do you think would happen if we just paused? Each one of us, don't elbow the person next to you, okay? This is about you. This is about me. What if we just stopped and asked, I know what the part of the problem is. I'm not getting what I want. You know what would happen? Well... Let me tell you what would happen, because on, I think it was Thursday, Carrie and I had a little discussion over the phone, and I'm not going to even tell you what it was about, because I would be so embarrassed, because it was so minor and so small, that it's, it's uh, just embarrassing. But we had a discussion nonetheless, and, you know, to be really honest, I probably started it off and was the, the primary contributor to it uh, going on over the phone. The funny thing is I had just gotten done studying this for my sermon study. <laughs> so there you go. But I did remember what I had studied and I applied it. I didn't tell Carrie, you know, I'm going to try something right now. Um, but just inwardly, I took ownership of the fact that at least part of this discussion this conflict was my issue. And you know what happened in that very moment? My tone changed. 
know what happened when I owned my slice? That we actually ended that phone call on a good note. Whereas otherwise, sometimes we would have had to figure it out when I came home from work. And it would have dragged on something so stupid way too long. I know what, what part of the problem is. I'm not getting what I want. Fights and quarrels. It's something oftentimes a major part of it is in us. And yes, you do need to have difficult discussions with kids. And it is okay to want things from them when it comes to what God wants from them. And it's okay to, with your, your spouse to have certain expectations of, of what they've promised to you. Absolutely. But even in those cases, is there not part of it that we can still own? Is there not still part of it that we can own that maybe we didn't do a good job of teaching our kids when they were young about this, and so now I don't like it, but I'm going to own that part. Or maybe I didn't speak as well as I could about this or explain it. So I may not be totally wrong here, but I'm going to own that slice, that part. The fill in the blank. Acknowledge that we own some of the blame. I think that's what James is pointing us to. But then... Here comes the even better news and the gospel-centered direction at the end of verse 2. You don't have because you don't ask God. There's a spiritual element to conflicts, as James writes about it. This doesn't mean that if you then, you know, get down on your knees and pray that all of a sudden what you wanted from your spouse will just magically appear. But it's more about the shift in emphasis and the shift in who you're looking to to meet your needs. I see in pre-marriage counseling too often, hasn't happened lately, but too often, I, I see people who are unhappy thinking that getting married is going to make them happy. But someone once said there's really no such things as marriage problems. It's just single people problems that combine when you get married. Because why is that? Because they've forgotten this truth. We've forgotten this truth. That you can't find likely what you're looking for from the person you're married to. Or from your kids or from your parents. That at the end of the day, True peace and joy and happiness can only come from God. And then when the telemarketer calls, because we have that foundation, likely with the Spirit living in us, we'll respond differently, hopefully, than the person without the Spirit. And these are not just my words. Look what Paul writes in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit the things that come only from God, the things that come from the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus is what? Love. True love. Joy. Real joy. Not just like that two-month honeymoon period where the other person can't do anything wrong in your eyes. Real joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can't find your true happiness out of your kids. They will disappoint you. And 
someday they will move and probably won't call you as much as you want them to, right? And what is gonna, what's going to happen to you if all of your life and your joy is founded on them? And you can't find it in your spouse. Unhappy people are unhappy people no matter who they're married to. And that's why people get married. If they get remarried, it's usually more than once a lot of times unless they fix what is going on in themselves. We cannot squeeze out of our spouse that which they cannot give. No matter how hard we squeeze, no matter how hard we, we badger them, we have to look in our hearts because fights and quarrels at the end of the day are from the battles that are within us. And there's more, there's a bigger picture, there's responsibility on both ends, but we come back to our hearts. And that true joy, why can it be true joy? Because it has everything to do with Jesus. That foundation that we sang about that never changes. The, the God who never fails and never forgets about you and never does anything other than what's in your best interest. It's that God, that love, that Jesus that will be the solution to the conflict that is in our families and also ultimately within our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we all have relationships and families that have conflict in them. Thank you for your inspiration of James uh, to direct us to better understanding um, maybe the roots of conflict and then also to lead us to look at you, our God, our Lord and Savior, instead of at our spouse or our family for that which you can only give. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us to live the way that you have created us to be through your Holy Spirit. Lord, also today we take a moment to thank you once again for the new life that you started in uh, Benjamin Gorvin's life. What an amazing day, what an amazing Savior he has. We ask you to continue to be with him all the days of his life until that day that he's with you forever in heaven. Lord, we also keep in our prayers uh, Travis Torgerson, a friend of one of our members who was in a serious uh, accident involving a car this past week. We uh, ask you to be with him, heal him, um, be with his family, and, and lead them to find their true joy and peace, even in this difficult circumstance in you. And finally, Lord, we uh, pray a prayer of thanks for the many members that you're joining with our church family today. We uh, ask you uh, for, to move us to be blessings to them and also allow them to uh, grow in their faith and be blessings to this community as well. In Jesus' name, we pray this and continue by praying.